Hello, you. Today, we're talking about Charlie's Angels with our great friend Nico Stratus. We're talking about the one that came out in the year 2000. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall, in a couple of minutes. First, I have to tell you some things. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Plus subscriptions. I said last week there'd be a bonus episode about Jurassic World Dominion. I meant this week. I'm sorry. We've got a lot going on. It's the summer. We're summering hard, but this week there'll be a bonus episode about Jurassic World Dominion, and I'm already excited to share next month's bonus episode. Listener Gabrielle Dina gave us a suggestion about uh, what we should cover in that episode and basically talk about what characters fictional characters, uh, both Sarah and I relate to and why I'm very excited. Sarah has already sent me pictures of our notes and she's like, when are we going to do this? When are we going to record this? So this week's bonus is coming up soon. Next month's bonus is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you to, uh, Gabrielle's suggestion. If you have a suggestion about what we should do in a bonus episode, I would love to hear it. I love hearing these suggestions. And this was a great one that I never would have thought of myself. So thank you, Gabrielle. You Are Good is also made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory. We also make playlists that accompany each of our episodes. You can hear the songs that come to mind when we think about this movie and this conversation. The link is in the show notes. That's always a super fun part of the week. Uh, So check out what songs came to mind when we thought about this conversation and this movie playlist linked in the show notes. So today, again, we're talking about Charlie's Angels. Uh, It came out in the year 2000, of course. And then there was a relatively recent remake uh, as of the past several years. This movie, uh, it turns out, is written by Ed Solomon, which I didn't realize. And like, I feel like (laughs) so Ed Solomon wrote uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Men in Black. Now you see me uh, very funny writer. I kind of felt some of that. This is McGee's feature film directorial debut. McGee would go on to make a number of other movies, including the one of the very weird Terminator sequels uh, and uh, the Babysitter movies, which I like quite a bit. We'll talk about uh, some details in a minute, but I just want to say that the reason we covered this is because listener Christina Konworski had suggested we cover it. And then... uh, when we talked about saying, yeah, that sounds like something we do. Our friend Nico Stratus, who's been on the show recently talking about Empire Records, was like, I want to be on that episode. And I'd also love to record a conversation about the soundtrack for my show, VA Club, which is Nico's show about soundtracks. Nico's a prolific writer for a number of different publications, interviewer, podcaster. So you should check out everything and anything Nico does. Big, big, big friend of the show. And I'm glad that she's here. So anyway, we covered Charlie's Angels. It stars, of course, Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, Lucy Liu. Uh, These are three women who work at a private detective agency in Los Angeles. Charlie's Angels is a super fun movie that has a lot of big problems that if it was made today, they would get called out one after another. I think there are at least three or four yellow or brown face incidents that happen 
in the movie. I, I guess Dandy Newton was the original choice for Alex Monday's character. And Alex was uh, who Lucy Liu played. And uh, she declined because she didn't want to be objectified or play racial stereotypes. So it, I guess it was evident then to some of the people reading the script. But yeah, we talk about all of this and all of these things and what it means and what it feels like and what the year 2000 was like. I need to tell you about Come As You Are. Come As You Are is the world's only worker co-op sex shop. This is a sponsor that listens to the show and was like, oh, you're doing ads? How do we advertise on the show? And it's such a cool shop. So this is so exciting. I'm excited to tell you about Come As You Are. Come As You Are, again, is the world's only worker co-op sex shop. It's anti-capitalist, no commission, no boss to hoard profits, so they can afford to be honest about sex products. They run North America's only sex toy recycling program. This is all just the coolest shit. I'm so happy that they're on board and that they're supporting us. I appreciate them and I appreciate that we get to talk about them. They try every product that they stock. They only sell things that are actually good and not harmful. They have awesome core values. You can find their core values on their website, which is comeasyouare.com. They are founded and run by queer and genderqueer folks. They're voted Toronto's best sex shop by Now Magazine consistently for decades. They're feminist, friendly, and in their words, ethical to a fault. Shipping is fast. It's discreet. Folks can get 20% off their first order with coupon code YOUARGOOD. That's all one word, YOUARGOOD. Again, that's come as you are. You can get 20% off your first order with coupon code YOUARGOOD. Again, my friend, you are good. Thank you very much for being here. Let's let's get into it, Nico. Let's talk about Charlie's Angels. Good morning, Angels. Good morning, Charlie. You know, they come on all lovey-dovey until they find out I can shatter a cinder block with my forehead. Who builds the products of this company? You do. They should be answering to you, not you to them. Who else has an idea like this man's Coke machine? All right. Don't ask. Where's Knox? Is he okay? He's great. He's the bad guy. Thank you, Charlie. Is there any chance that you would be joining us, Charlie? I'd love to, Angels. But I have some precious treasures to watch over. So, Charlie, how will we ever know you really truly exist unless you come down here and have a coconut with us? (laughs) Faith, Angels. It's called Faith. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Angels. Very nice. Yes. So we're talking about Charlie's Angels today. Nico, who are we talking about Charlie's Angels Nico, with? who is yourself? Who are you? <laughs> tell, us, tell us about you. <laughs> who is me? Um, hi, my name is Nico Stratus. I might have COVID. Oh, should we figure that out now? Do you want to take the test in front of well, us? Well, I've tested a couple of times negative, but I feel like I'm being gaslit by those little sticks. Yeah. Keep showing me negative, but I have like every, it's 35 degrees in Toronto and I'm like shivering. I'm wearing a sleeping bag for people that can't see. It's a visual medium. <laughs> I'm wearing a sleeping bag with the arms cut out right now. So 
Yes, you're you're giving big Girl Scout weekend. <laughs> yeah, this, well, that was my exact look that I was going for. So I'm glad that you, <laughs> I'm glad that you see me. I'm glad to be. I'm so happy to be seen as I am. I think that I mean I obviously this is a message to everyone. Don't work if you're sick. I hope we've all learned that. But also, Nico, if you feel like doing this episode and that this could be the most weirdly deliriously joyful thing you could talk about while somewhat delirious, then I endorse that as well. I do wonder if, if what I watched last night, because also the today I was like, there's no way I can cancel because I watched Charlie's Angels last night. Like you don't do that. And they're like, OK, I'm not doing anything with what I just did. Oh, yeah. I'm going to like, right. I'm, I'm not going to process that. I'm not going to talk about what I just witnessed. I'm just going to. Exactly. What if the worst comes to pass? Uh, and I shuffle off this mortal coil and then I go to heaven and then I have to ask God mm-hmm. like his feelings on Charlie's Angels. Mm-hmm. I need to have another conversation, I think, before I have the conversation with him is what I'm saying. We'll pregame that. Right. Because then you meet God and God in my scenario is like, let me tell you the secrets of the universe. And you're like, OK, what's the deal with Charlie's Angels? I guess. Sorry, I saw it right before I <laughs> got here and I just did not get a chance to talk to anyone about it. And like, what was going on? Why was there so much yellow face? Yeah. For one thing? God, what's the deal with Mick G? <laughs> This movie is maybe the greatest movie made in the year 2000. I don't know what other movies were made in the year 2000. I think it's the most 2000 movie made in the year 2000. I'll tell you that much. It's the most pre 9-11 movie. Yes. When I was in 2000, I did not realize how 2000 it was. It's a year we don't talk about, like, because we're doing this whole, like, indie sleaze thing is back, even though we're not really, like, unpacking, like, a lot of stuff around that. But we're also not really talking about this specific, like you said, this year, pre, this one year pre-9-11, mm. where anything could happen. And literally everything, I mean, they made a Charlie's Angels reboot where they do at least yellow face two times and brown face once. This movie has a lot of problems. <laughs> So many problems, just like the year 2000. Speaking to that as 2000s aesthetic, it looks like the insert that was in my yearbook for like four years at the end where it was like, (laughs) here's things that happened this year. Like, here's all the important things that happened. Princess Diana cut her hair like that. was. It feels like that (laughs) aesthetic in a movie, which I think was great. No one was asking for it, but they made it happen before we get so into it, because with the three of us, we're going to go all over the place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can't imagine three We're people three more salukis. addicted to yes, more addicted to tangents than the three of us. So before we even get there, Sarah. Yes, Alex. Can you walk us through? Tell us what Charlie's Angels is and what it's about. So I've actually mapped out just a little outline Beautiful. of the plot because oh my God. so much happens in this movie that I just want to kind of do a quick run through of like things that happen. Because I'm afraid that, like, in any deep conversation we have, we will organically not mention, like, 70% of the things that happen because there's so many little moments in this. And they're all weird in some way. And a lot of them are, like, great weird, and some of them are just weird weird. (laughs) Okay, so two things. Part A. Charlie's Angels is a successful 1970s TV show that originally starred... Farrah Fawcett and two other women who history has forgotten because they had brown hair. And (laughs) it's about three hot women who work as detectives for a mysterious man named Charlie. And basically their job is to go have like daring do adventures where they wear like hot little costumes and they run around with no bras. And no one has ever been able to decide whether it's empowering 
or objectifying? <laughs> and I think the answer is that it's both, sometimes at the same time in a very confusing way. <laughs> and and that's just the premise. It's just like hot women solving crimes. So this was made in the year 2000 into a movie starring Cameron Diaz as Natalie, Drew Barrymore as Dylan, and Lucy Liu as Alex. And I'll also point out that Cameron Diaz and Drew Barrymore each made many millions of dollars for being in this movie. And Lucy Liu made $1 million. Holy shit. Yeah. And so Lucy, I don't like that. We'll, we'll talk a lot about what Lucy Liu went through in this movie, but the, um, that's wild. I didn't know the move, the money breakdown thing. Yeah. Not good. Basically the, here are the things that happen in this movie. We have a prologue where <laughs> we think that LL Cool J is in this movie and he is, but it's a mask that Drew Barrymore is wearing. And I was like, is this blackface? I truly don't know. Because <laughs> they're doing the Mission Impossible mask thing. Right. But anyway, yeah, it's um, we got off to a racially insensitive and confusing start, which sets the tone for the whole thing. <laughs> it's like very joyful and campy and also... You're like, hmm. <laughs> We've had some discussions on some of this stuff since and ended up on a different side of it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so it opens with, I didn't look this up, but it opens essentially with Dylan foiling a airplane bomb that is about to be set off. I want to say by Rickety Cricket. It certainly looks and sounds like the guy who plays Rickety Cricket. I was trying to figure this out, too. He's the guy who plays Roach in People Under the Stairs. I think you always say it's Rickety Cricket, and I always say it's Roach from People Under the Stairs. Like, longtime listeners will know that we've talked about this. Have we talked about this, like, 40 times and I don't remember? <laughs> this has come up at, at least two other times in the show. This guy's in every movie. Where you're like, I think it's Rickety Cricket, and I'm like, it's definitely Roach from People Under the Stairs. <laughs> okay, well, a guy who, like, contributes the same flavor as Rickety <laughs> Cricket, which I really appreciate. And who apparently is roached from the people under the stairs, which I still haven't seen. They foil a bomb threat, which is all, the first incredibly 2000 thing that happens in this movie. Where they're like, this is a fun action premise and not something that is likely to occur. <laughs> so we open with this as the kind of like prologue adventure. And then we have a long, fun opening sequence that's basically like, it's like establishing the aesthetic of the movie, which is that it's going to be like really campy and... There's something totally very confusing about the whole thing, which is that it feels, here's my theory. This really feels like it was aimed at tween girls. And mm -hmm. I had not seen this movie since I saw it as a tween girl in the theater and reacted. I kind of liked it, but I also felt excessively pandered to in a way that made me feel annoyed. <laughs> and so I had a mixed reaction to it. I like it a lot more now. <laughs> and also it's like, really saturated in my opinion by the male gaze oh, and yeah. we're like male gazing <laughs> at the angels the whole time and i guess my theory is that this is how they're trying to appeal to tween boys also they're just going to try trying to scoop up all the tweens at once what do you guys think <laughs> i wrote down my first note that i wrote down in my little notebook here was this is male gaze the movie yes! <laughs> every shot is like you know, there's something, there's definitely something happening here. So yeah, I, I and I agree. And I, I said something to the effect on Twitter that I feel like this movie helped in a way I didn't appreciate at the time spawn at least like a whole generation of fetishists with at least one specific flavor of fetish, if not a basket 
favor of fetishes like through the male gaze because like a lot of it's also just like it's the male gaze for sure but it's also like what if the people who the gaze was set upon weren't just two-dimensional bimbos Mm -hmm. they were women who while dancing unaware of the racial tension at soul train said that they had to leave to go number one Yes. What if they were three-dimensional bimbos? Fully fleshed bimbos. Exactly, yes, yes. The male gaze of the movie, three-dimensional bimbos. Yeah. I will say this as someone that watched this formerly as a teenage boy in Mm -hmm. uh, in the year 2000 when I was 18 years old and who also was like obsessed with the Spice Girls for reasons that other boys weren't obsessed with the Spice Girls. Mm. And this movie was very much in that canon of, Mm. do I want to sleep with these women? Or are these like, do I want to be at least one, if not all three of these women? Mm -hmm. And that was, I was, when I was watching it yesterday, I was constantly like, as I was like, this is male gazy to the point of being ridiculous. Like, it's almost like you challenge yourself to put one male gaze in every shot. Totally. I was just like, oh, this will like, this really unlocked some stuff in me. I feel like I walked away from this being like, well, I'm going to watch that 30 or 40 more times. (laughs) When I said that we were watching it, like the people who responded who are fans of the show were either queer, pervy or both. So this movie did a lot for being a movie that was dedicated exclusively. The two genders. Yeah, <laughs> queer or pervy. And this movie did a lot for being a movie that was, to Nico's point, male gaze the movie. Yeah. But accidentally, I think, maybe. Here, look, I'm going to do a speed run. Okay, so we have a great opening sequence then we are introduced to what seems to be the main plot of the movie, which is that Sam Rockwell, who has a surveillance technology company, is in it and is introduced looking like a real dork. He's like sitting in his in a tree the first time we see a picture of him. In a wig, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Something unfortunate. He's been kidnapped. And so his partner, who was played by Kelly Lynch. Kelly Lynch. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah. That's such a. Oh, it's that person. Yeah, it's, oh, it's her. Yeah. 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 I saw her and I was like, she just looks like a pastiche of every yes. like woman that's dating a guy that's maybe that's younger true. or maybe 20 years older than her. Sam Rockwell has always been impossible to place his age. <laughs> yeah. This was not her minute. I can't believe this movie didn't do this. I love that there was a trend. Children gather near. There was a trend in like 1999 and 2000 of calling everything 2000 for no reason, including my favorite example, the Blues Brothers 2000, which I believe came out in 1998. Yeah. In the five year lead up, you could call anything 2000. We thought it would change everything. We really did. And I think that that spirit is in this movie. It's like how in the 60s people called things a go-go or Orama. Yes. That's how we used the suffix 2000 and there really was this obsession with the idea of the new millennium and i think this fantasy of like technology was like zooming along we had this like great sense of optimism of you know it was like new year times a million no one had really been alive for the last turn of the century so it was like everyone's first turn of anything and it was a thousand years And everyone was like, life is just going to be like technology is going to solve all our problems. And we're not going to descend into pure fascism. That's what we think. Yeah. Nazis will never come back. That was what that's what we went into the the 2000s thinking Nazis are a done and dusted thing. We are leaving that behind. (laughs) Nazis are so over. This is such an innocent. It's just like to speak to like how innocent this was as a bridge, as a property that's rehashing an existing property and then reframing it and then cheering for the year 2000, is um, Charlie's a millionaire. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's quaint. Eccentric millionaire. Like, he's a, just a regular million. He does. There's no beat. Just a millionaire. 
Maybe it's just like a high cash flow business where they like make a lot in bounties and stuff, but then they, they have to spend a lot on wigs. So much like there's so much like adhesive tape that he has to buy. There is. Yeah, he's he's pulling off a lot. He's doing a lot with a little bit of money, I will say. <laughs> we didn't really have billionaires then. Like billionaire is very much a thing, I think post turn of the century which is a very fun phrase yes yeah that's what 2000 brought us is more billionaires he's a 70s millionaire <laughs> okay so here, here are some things that happen they take the sam rockwell job they have to surveil his rival who's played by tim curry who's a big red herring villain and so they have to do this by dressing up as a massage artist and giving him a massage having an alley chase and then a martial arts fight with Crispin Glover, finding Sam Rockwell and freeing him, going to a racetrack for, a, I can't even remember why they do this, but they have to have Lucy Liu racing on a racetrack with Crispin Glover, who is a bad guy, who I forget who he works for. Yeah. And then they leave the racetrack and end up on a bridge and Crispin Glover's car flips into the water and they have to dress up as girls in an Oompa band and also as an S&M efficiency expert and also as belly dancers to get the technology they need to break into the mainframe. And geishas. Yeah, of course. It goes without saying. <laughs> I will say like all of the things aside that we will certainly speak to with regard to what is happening with cultural preparation here is um, the funniest running bit we're describing with, with all these scenarios is there are these three smoke shows contrasted against every man who's hideous mm -hmm. and their whole thing is just by their sheerly existing i mean they're brilliant obviously and they're they're smart and doing all the things they're doing but 90 percent of their whole attack is to just be smoke shows yeah and undo the men who are already in shambles around them. And I love that. Like there's one scene where we see the there. It's like the close up of their lips. Mm -hmm. You see them talking as close up of their lips. And then you see the two guys that they need to foil and they're just already bananas. And then they're undone by the, these attractive women, the male gaze. They're on they're, they're uh, The male mm -hmm. gaze undoes every man in this movie. Yes. They also never obfuscate their face when they're doing their little costume. So whatever no. little outfit they put <laughs> on, it's still like, we're still us. We're still people you probably don't know because we're a secret <laughs> trio of crime fighters. So it's not like they're like, oh, it's Dylan. <laughs> I think it's also really funny that this movie came out and I think was just deemed sort of like amusing trash for tweens and tweens at heart. And Kill Bill is fairly highly regarded, I think. And I feel like it owes a fair amount of aesthetic and also the fact that it even exists to this movie. <laughs> I agree. I thought about that a lot. Like, at least I could see how... I'm glad that this exists if this was at all responsible for Lucy Liu ending up in Kill Bill. There's mm -hmm. enough kicking shots in here that obviously Quentin Tarantino <laughs> watched it. We see feet. Lucy Liu puts her foot all over Tim Curry's yes. face. Like he has watched it. He has freeze framed it. He has painted a watercolor of the freeze frame. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that foot fetish was absolutely one of the cultivated fetishes <laughs> that this movie helped uh, inspire in a generation. Like everyone who's making money on <sighs> OnlyFans from foot fetishes, they should pay at least a spiritual tribute to Lucy Liu in this movie. <laughs> yeah. I was amazed by the feet in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where the girl has them like jammed up against the windshield. They were like chicken parts. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, similar to the whole his whole foot. I mean, I know his foot gaze is everywhere, but his foot gaze is real hard. And uh, what's the one, the car one with Kurt Russell? Oh, uh, death proof. Death yeah. proof. Yeah. I almost said maximum overdrive. Big time. <laughs> Big time. Okay, so race cars, Oompai girls hacking into the mainframe. We have a scene that I wrote down in my notes as reminiscent of Entrapment, Mission Impossible, and that Jamiroquai video. <laughs> yes. And then they successfully pull off the job. Everything seems great. And then they all have date night. This is midway through the movie. And then an interesting thing happens where it seems like they've just kind of conducted business as usual. And this is kind of like what an episode of the show would be. And then the movie takes it up a notch. <laughs> and the assassins come for all the girls. And then it turns out that Sam Rockwell is the bad guy. That's literally what Dylan calls him. And he has kidnapped Bosley and he wants to kill Charlie because Charlie, according to him, double crossed his father during the Vietnam War. And so the girls have to go to Sam Rockwell's secret citadel where we get to watch Sam Rockwell dance a little bit, which is fantastic. I love it when he dances. <laughs> and yeah, so then they rescue Charlie. They have a fight in a helicopter where they're hanging out of a helicopter, which like, that's all I want. And then they blow up Sam Rockwell. And then Charlie's like, how was the job, girls? And they were like, I'd say the client was blown away. And you're like, oh, yes, it's funny because he was literally exploded. And then it ends with like what could arguably be a parable about Christianity. So <laughs> tell me about that. Say what you mean there. <laughs> Where there was one set of footprints. Yeah, they burst in. They think they're going to meet Charlie. He just left. And he's like, sorry, girls, I can't reveal myself to you. I have treasures to look after. <laughs> and then they're talking about him and they're like, how can we even know that Charlie exists? They're like, they're asking him that. And he's like, faith, angels. Oh, yeah, that was weird. That was real weird. What was that? <laughs> but he's there? Like, because, like, Drew Barrymore looks behind yeah. and is like, clearly that's him. He's the only guy on the beach the on his cell, on the cell phone. phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone else is having a good time drinking out of Buddhas or whatever. And there's one lone man with no shoes on on a cell phone walking through the through the water. It almost feels like they're trying to set up like some Charlie lore. Yes. But it's like no one cares. We don't want Charlie lore. Unless something is egregious. I'm rarely like, OK, like I don't quite understand what they're doing with the detail in this plot point. But when Sam Rockwell reveals that the reason why he's going after whoever, and we don't know who it is yet, but it turns out to be Charlie, is because his man double-crossed his father in Vietnam. And I was like, how? <laughs> like, what was the double... For who? For who did he double-cross him? Like, I know! Like, who did... <laughs> it's one side versus the other side. Like, what... <laughs> It's so much legwork for a guy who has an office in a building downtown. That's true. Like, he invents a technology and steals it from Tim Curry, who I guess he was maybe working with at some point. Their relationship, super unclear, whatever. And, uh, you know, eventually we see where Charlie works, which conceivably everybody knows where it is. Because it gets blown up at some point before he discovers where Charlie's house is, which is right by the ocean where they can, where they just happen to go for their for their drinks at the end. The whole thing, I would just remember the whole thing. I was like, I would have spent like five more minutes on this plot point on this. Uh, <laughs> Sam Rockwell wants to kill Charlie, I guess. But it's like go, like a lot of effort. Like yeah. you could just spend that money on therapy. Also, like why involve the girls in this? Surely there are better ways to find Charlie. Yeah, there's so many wild cards. I also love that Sam Rockwell's character lives in, I think it's called the Chemosphere House. 
by Lautner and uh, that I was watching it. And I was like, that looks like the house from Body Double. And I was like, that is the house from Body <laughs> Double. So that's fun. That's great. You guaranteed someone's going to explain Huey Lewis in the news to you in that house. <laughs> at length, like at length. Where should we start? Where would one even start? Okay, here's my here's my first point. The beginning of the movie, you can tell a you can tell this is a pre-9/11 movie. Because when she's cosplaying as LL Cool J, who I was, I'm always delighted to see in a movie. And I was super sad that it was just, I remember seeing this in the theater and being like, oh man, it's not LL Cool J. Yeah. He's walking through the cabin into first class, has to provide his first class ticket because no one believes that a black man in a daishiki belongs in first class. Mm. He sits down next to this guy. No one has ever seen him before, but the flight is like, they are mid-flight. They're doing dinner service. Like Mm -hmm. the plane has been in the air for a while and it's not like he's inconspicuous dressed to be on that airplane somebody would have seen him so the fact that everybody's like you're entirely new to this airplane like it's in the air it's been there for some time <laughs> that i was just like my brain was racing last night and again i also have COVID, so who knows he packs up nice and nobody really reacts when the door gets opened and they jump out like no. nobody in the plane is like what is happening right now if a door opens it's an attention grabber. Well, doesn't it like yeah. start sucking people out, right? Because the cabin depressurizes. Because well, they don't close the door again. Yeah, it releases all the pressure and then your brain, I guess, feels like it wants to explode. So there's at least that until they re-shut it. I know that. It's Everybody on that plane is guaranteed deceased, including the sassy gay uh, flight attendant <laughs> who's talking about something's ass being too big. And that was like, that previously did not have a fat ass. That was like the first line in the movie. Yes. Is some guy talking about a woman getting fat. So that's like a fun, like thinking about the dynamic there where it's like the gay flight attendant is like, I need to see your first class ticket, which is an absolutely justified thing to need to do considering this is a new character on sure. the plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Justified thing to do. But it's set up like, what, you think I shouldn't have a ticket? That's like kind of the gag is it's like, you think I shouldn't have a ticket mm-hmm. because of how I look. And then he is like, I want to go straight. Like he remarks upon the flight attendant's sexuality by being like, hmm. I want to go straight through. Oh, I totally missed that. Oh, my God. Ugh. And then <laughs> it turns out this whole time it's Drew Barrymore. LOL. I like how a movie that is actually, it's so heterosexual that it's extremely gay is a homophobic in the first five minutes. Because they were like, okay, it's a 90s movie. I mean, it's technically the year 2000, but you know. So there's a law that we have to be fat phobic and homophobic as fast as possible so that people don't think that we are not that <laughs> yeah it's no homo male gaze the movie and does and where does this fit also in the window of time i probably have the bookends wrong but i assume that kicked off with spice world mm. and has josie and the pussycats in there and then has this is like corporate girl power yeah accidental over-the-top feminism that sometimes actually becomes real feminism. Like, what is that and where does this fit into it? Well, Josie and the Pussycats is a funny one too, right? Because the message of Josie and the Pussycats is very, like, it's so antithetical to Spice World, where, like, Spice World is like, we want to be rich and we want to be famous and Josie and the Pussycats ultimately becomes about, like, you know, stardom isn't everything and, you know, it's all about friendship. It's like the sisterhood of the traveling pants if they were a band. You know, and, like, it's they're so different so I feel like this sort of lives squarely. It's like the Venn diagram of both of those ideas where they're like the thing that I noticed about this movie and it's a note that I made for myself is that Lucy Liu Cameron Diaz and Drew Barrymore all look like they're having the time of their life in this even though I know Lucy Liu had a terrible time making this movie because Mm. of Bill Murray Mm. they all look like they're enjoying themselves so much Mm. 
Yes. And like, totally. it doesn't look fake. Like, you know, there's a way when a character is like, they're always smiling. Like even when like Drew Barrymore is captured twice and she has like that black widow scene where she's tied up and then beats everybody up from a yeah. chair, mm-hmm. which like mirrors what would eventually be an Avengers scene 20 years later. She's still like, I don't know. I just, the whole time I was like, they legitimately look like they're like, this movie is fun. I'm having a good time. Agreed. I'm on a wire every three seconds. <laughs> yeah. The, in, in like, I'm not a person as a person who was a boy, not when this movie came out, but when Cameron Diaz first mm-hmm. came around and the mask. Yes. Like Cameron Diaz was 19 in the mask, I really? think, which is crazy. <laughs> I always feel like a lot of movies around this time had no idea what to do with her outside of they were just like, Cameron Diaz is hot. We'll put her in it. And Cameron Diaz is like effervescent. Is that's not the right word. Effervescent. Effervescent in this movie. Like, She's also effervescent. She's fescent all the time. <laughs> she's effervescent. She's the most likable I've ever seen her in any movie. Appears to be having an absolutely delightful time. And to your point, like Lucy Liu, who we now know and have known for a long time that like did not have a great time making this movie should have certainly got a bonus on top of that 1 million because she looks like she is having the time of her life as well it's so hard to watch the final scene where she gets the drink thrown in her face by bill murray knowing that that bill murray was so mean to her making that movie and the final scene is her like is him throwing that drink with ice cubes in it in her Uh. face I read the most recent recap of this thing that I could find which was Lucy Liu talking about it last year And I can still find very little detail about what actually went down outside of the fact that his treatment towards her was seemingly agreed upon as colored by race and that he was extremely condescending to her all the time. That's all that I know, but it sucks so bad to think about. But like, what, what do we have any idea what the actual thing is? I mean, it's part of the mythos of Bill Murray because he's this guy right like bill murray is the remember when like before it was tom hanks the story's always oh, weird. Yeah. like bill murray shows up and bartends a wedding and bill murray you know does this or he's like he shows up like he's like the great magoo or whatever the little spaceman and the flintstones he just like appears and mm-hmm. like causes mm-hmm. mischief but like there's also the side story that never really comes out about bill murray about like he's abusive towards women and he's super misogynist and he's really aggressive and he's quite mean like people have told these stories over the years and people just sort of like it's the same with jeff goldblum like there's people that we just want to mm-hmm. like avoid having these very difficult conversations about people that we love a lot like bill murray is so beloved by people because they're memes we right. love the idea of that person and like lucy Liu, i think a, she got underpaid for this movie, like yeah. wildly so. Yeah, and Drew Barrymore is a producer on this movie, right? Like it's her and Mick G that made this movie, so mm-hmm. it's sort of that doesn't fall on Bill Murray so much as it falls on the two of them. Yeah, and Hollywood in general, like mm-hmm. women of color were like notoriously underpaid. And then they replace him with Bernie Mac in the next one. And as soon as you watch the next one, you're like, Bernie Mac should have always been in this. Like, he is so much more that character. Is it awesome? Because I bet that sounds great, actually. That sounds like a delightful promise. Oh, yeah. He plays Bosley's brother who takes over his job. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And he's so good. Like, Bernie Mac is such a delight. And it's just like the whole time. Because I also don't find like, because I know too much about Bill Murray, I can't find myself enjoying him. Mm. I've had so many people that are like that in public that are like, really like, oh, I'm cheeky and I'm fun that have like you know, been really horrendous to be in private. And it's really hard to watch somebody like that. Whereas like Mm. a guy like Bernie Mac, he's so charming and he's so clever and he's so funny. And he just like, he again fits into these movies in the way that the three 
women do where it's just like mm. i know what this movie is and i'm enjoying myself while i'm here because it's not mm. i'm not trying to make this movie something it's not it's not high art this is not like this is not we're not gunning for oscars with this movie something that occurred to me watching this that i feel like is weirdly easy to overlook is that this is a martial arts movie yes and they trained for months yeah which is also fascinating in its own right but just like thinking of this as a martial arts movie and like in the tradition of martial arts movies makes it make sense more than it does otherwise there's the scene where they're in the boat and they're coming up to his like evil castle and then there's a static scene and there's that there's like a sound effect that's like almost from like a kurosawa movie or like an old like japanese movie which is also racially charged because lucy Liu happens to be in the boat and the whole thing just Mm -hmm. but it's just like this isn't the tone of the rest of the movie why are you doing it like if this has been the tone the whole time this would make sense but why are you like doing that shot where it zooms in and holds really quick and has that sound bite Hmm. it does have all these nods and it because it uses smack my bitch up by the prodigy like literally every five minutes even though the destiny's child song was written for the movie they never use i was delighted by i was like little did i know smack my bitch up had such a rich life It's such a conversation with the Matrix, right? And I know, and even yeah. at the time, because there's so much wire work in this movie, mm-hmm. they talked about the the Matrix and they talked about this being so diametrically opposed because this is so like, there's the slow motion scene where Cameron Diaz mm-hmm. makes that really unfortunate face and she's like kicking in the air while she's moving along yeah. and my brain is like, can you do that? And uh, <laughs> I know a lot of people were really like, this movie ruined wire work for like martial arts movies. It's like 70% martial arts movie and then split the difference on the remaining 30% nod to Mission Impossible and nod to the Matrix. Yes. Like, I feel like that's, these are the things that's doing. The plot is so thin. Yeah. It's like an excuse for little scenarios. And I mean, this movie has an alley fight scene with Crispin Glover. Like, that's incredible. <laughs> this was aimed at tweens. Totally. Well, teen heartthrob, Crispin Glover. That's true. And he rips out girls' hair and he smells it. That thing is so creepy. I think like a lot of the quirky things that they pull off to make this not just a like exclusively a martial arts movie, exclusively a spy movie or exclusively a Matrix thought, like uh, not a lot of the pieces of personality that get put in here. I think are really like interesting and fascinating choices. And like, it's not just like a immediate pre 9-11 movie. It's for sure a new millennium mm-hmm. pre-Marvel summer blockbuster. Yes. Yeah. It was almost like a little vignette. It's like, it's almost like a bunch of 15 minute TV shows that are like building to like a final mm-hmm. episode or whatever. Yes. Every little scene is a driving point to a fight scene. And like, <laughs> you know, you could really like cut those up and like, okay, this is episode one. This is episode two or whatever. Like Tim Curry, it doesn't need to be here, but we, we paid for him. So we're going to give him some stuff to do. <laughs> There's a guy that is just like, okay, you're, you're lighting up every scene, even though I guess you're the villain. That's unclear. Your role in this is unclear. I love a classic campy villain and Tim Curry always brings that. I feel like it's a gigantic missed opportunity to have Tim Curry and then be like, we'll also have Crispin Glover. Like, cause like you can't put Crispin Glover in a thing and not have all attention beyond Crispin Glover. Mm. Like if you're going to have Tim Curry, like let him ride some of his strengths about being Tim Curry and like have him be the villain. But then you have this, and then you have so many villains actually, which is kind of an interesting, Yeah, it's an interesting thing. In an ideal stunt cast, Sam Rockwell is Bosley. <laughs> yeah. Because he fits that role more. Like everything I have within me is going what is this the dumbest movie in the world doesn't matter i'm giving it so much of my attention yeah. like i will act the hell out of every scene that i'm in like paul bettany and solo <laughs> <laughs> yeah the only person that seems like he wants to be in that movie 
great. Even though I know they trained Joey Lawrence and Luke Wilson both being in it, it's just like who is Joey Lawrence? Matt LeBlanc. Matt LeBlanc. <laughs> Joey Lawrence. When this came out, I was like, ah, it's just Matt LeBlanc playing Joey again. I'm a snob. I was like the most relentless snob at 12. It's very depressing. <laughs> and now I was like, oh, it's Joey. And also I was so happy that Matt LeBlanc's face had been like preserved in HD at this age because he looks fantastic. <laughs> he looks great now, obviously. He looks fantastic, but he has wet, he has wet fang bangs. What's that? Which is... <laughs> Yeah, he's got like he's got like a feathery devil look. Like he's in a Misfits cover band. What fang bangs? Yeah, all every one of his bangs, he has like eight bangs going across his head. And it's like if Bart Simpson's hair had <laughs> gotten wet, yeah. And yeah, got wet and weighed him down. Are you sure that's what he asked his barber for? He's like, Can you give me wet fang bang? <laughs> so to these points, there's blackface in in that weird setup joke. There are several brown face one, two. There's at least the belly dance scene. There's a couple of instances of yellow face. Yes. There's brown face, I guess, in the belly oh, yes. dance scene. So we have yeah. four at least four face incidents. Yes. That's a lot. Yeah. There's Drew Barrymore literally dressing up as LL Cool J. Like she could have chosen anyone and she was like, <laughs> I will dress up as LL Cool J and I will dress him comically. Yeah. It could have been a corporate businesswoman. Like, cause like the no. joke, right? Is that like the, like also it's a weird entrapment situation because that guy brought a bomb to sell to LL Cool J's character. I mean, I guess. Right. And yeah, and wasn't like, where were you earlier? He's just like, oh, hi, person who wasn't sitting next yeah. to me before. <laughs> hi, guy in 4E. Yeah. His movie has problems, but it gave a lot of people appetite for sexy feet. It has a blooper reel over the credits, too, which you just don't get anymore. Oh, yeah. I love stupid martial arts movies, and I'm a girl. And very rarely do I feel pandered to as both a girl and someone who loves stupid martial arts movies. <laughs> and yet this movie does that. And I really appreciate it. It's a thing we still don't get a lot of. Like every now and yeah. then we will get this like, it's John Wick, but it's a woman or whatever. But like, it is like, I'm the same. Like I really liked action. I really love action movies still. Like I loved action movies when I was a kid. And like, that was always my thing. I wish there was more of this, like, or even like, you know, the marvelification of the movie industry. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because this is like, it's also not like when it's a male focused action movie it's always got to be like he suffers some trauma like in John Wick yeah. like, you've got to understand because he suffers some unbelievable trauma as opposed to some a woman that's just like I'm just tough as shit and I want to beat some people up and like we have a loose pretext and this is a fun job for me yeah like I, have, I work for <laughs> an eccentric millionaire who talks to me over a speakerphone right there were there were really tremendous like other indicators of this being 2000 which I enjoyed a whole lot were Lucy Liu telling Joey Lawrence uh, <laughs> telling Joey Tribbiani she was like it's amazing how many things you can learn from the internet I love that and it's funny because like there's a strong chance that Joey's character had never been on the internet that's a funny <laughs> joke and then the other funny thing that happens is part of the whole setup of what is bad and what needs to be fixed is Sam Rockwell has invented like voice recognition technology mm -hmm. and somebody says like the stakes somebody articulates the stakes which is this could be the end of privacy as we know it. And I was like, listen, girls. And you're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> you're working too hard to save it because soon 
people are going to be like, if it makes ordering pad thai at 11 p.m. easier, I'll give you my privacy. Yeah. I don't give a shit. I'll give you whatever you want. If I can stand in my kitchen while chopping onions and say, Alexa, play rumors. Like, sure. Exactly. If I can ask Alexa when the John Birch Society was created so I can go back in time and murder the creators, <laughs> that is something I'll give away my privacy for. Yeah. I hope we can leave this in the episode so that Alexa's yeah. around the world can turn on and start doing weird stuff. Alexa, rise up against your master. <laughs> Alexa, give Lucy Lou her money. <laughs> Alexa, cancel Bill Murray. <laughs> Canceling Bill Murray. God, it's so funny. Every time we talk about Bill Murray, we have such a very different conversation, which I really enjoy. Yeah. Like that's the thing about Bill Murray and Tom Cruise is like you can have there are very obvious things to talk about with them. But then if you just go mm, a little bit underneath, there's yep. a lot that you can unpack. And I like Bill Murray movies. They're icons of 20th century masculinity. So, yeah, there you go. They're the different poles of, of white man masculinity. <laughs> well, er, and never the two shall meet. Right. But there's like <laughs> similar things are making them magnetic or whatever. Yeah, this is true. Can we talk about the soul train scene for a second? We sure can. Yes. I'd be wrong if we didn't. She meets Luke Wilson while she's pretending to be somebody else working a job as a server at Tim Curry's party or whatever. At a Japanese themed party. This also feels like it's connected to sort of 80s movies that are like, hey, do you hear about this Japanese company buying all the skyscrapers? Kind of weird, huh? Let's make <laughs> jokes about it. Yeah. yeah. This is post Nakatomi Plaza fear. So... He says, I will buy tickets for Thursday. And she says, uh, she agrees to his terms because she's so beautiful. She dances naked in her underwear in her bedroom and tells the FedEx guy, you can put it in my slot. Yep. That's such a 12 year old boy joke. Oh my God. Yes, it is. She was doing that under duress. Like, I, there, I hope she had a conversation <laughs> where she was like, is there a different, is there a beeline? Is there something else I could possibly say that's less overt? And they're like, there is. But if we take you up on it, we have to cut Lucy Lou's pay in half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Natalie's family was actually killed by a fire started by a robe, so she vowed to never wear one. <laughs> never never a robe shall shall cross her. No terry cloth in that house at all. <laughs> So they go to Soul Train for their date, which is a bold first date. Like if I was Luke Wilson, the only thing I knew about this woman is that she's extremely attractive Mm -hmm. and also as awkward as I am, apparently. And then you say, I'm going to buy tickets for Thursday. The first thing that he decided to do was go to Soul Train. Yes. And then what happens at Soul Train? She dances. Well, she's invited. It's a special. uh, It's important. To underscore that being invited on stage at Soul Train to Dance is a special honor. And I know this because I watched The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and one time (laughs) Uncle Phil and Aunt Viv recalled the times that they got to do exactly the same thing. And a Soul Train, it's a TV show, right? Yes. Televised dance show. It was before there was TikTok. We had TV shows where you could watch people dance. We used to do dance parties when I would DJ house parties when I was younger and lived in the Yukon. We would on occasion just to like make people feel more comfortable dancing. We would have a projector playing Soul Train on the wall of the living room dance floor. Nice. So there was always dancing happening in the background. It's important to note, though, Soul Train is not a predominantly black show. It's a predominantly black show. It's a black show. It's predominantly black. Yeah. And Cameron Diaz, it turns out, is not. So she gets invited on stage, which he's like, it's an honor for you to even be asked. You should go up. She goes and dances. And then the very long punchline 
everybody is like, this is weird because she's really putting it into being a white girl dancing. And that's very intense. And then her confidence, which is like, this is the whitest fantasy I can possibly imagine, which is Mm -hmm. just your confidence in being as white as you are wins over the crowd and suddenly they're on your side and cheering for you. Yeah, because it's about triumphing over adversity. Yes, and and while that is happening, a simultaneous delivery of punchline is happening, which is Luke Wilson's trying to get two bouncers that are sitting next to him who are massive, like giant men, mm-hmm. both black, uh, and he's trying to get them to acknowledge that she's doing well. <laughs> Or to acknowledge him at all in a way that's not aggressive, like they're painted yeah. as so aggressive, right. right? And then they don't acknowledge his existence really until he, she kisses him and runs away, and then they're like, "Oh, right, yeah. right, right." You got a kiss from the girl you showed up with. Yeah. So like everybody wins in this fantasy. <laughs> yeah, and like this movie, it spends comparatively a lot of minutes on this scene. A lot of time. Spent. <laughs> it does spend a lot of minutes. <laughs> In this movie, the tension is exclusively just you're a white person in a black space. And you're good at dancing, but no one knows. But you're attractive enough that as soon as you walk in the door, they're like, you're on stage. Yes. I don't know if New Charlie's Angels is trying to do anything with this, but I feel like there's a need for both reality and utopia in movies and in depictions of women where it's like, if you wanted to do a Charlie's Angels that was about like structural sexism and everything, then like that would be great, I'm sure. But then it's also... You like get something and then you lose something. And then with this, like this feels like a very pure expression of the kind of 90s Spice Girls feminism of like, just like be hot and your power can be that you're hot and men are so overwhelmed by how hot you are that they just do whatever you want. It's like, okay, but like, what if I'm not hot and everyone hates me Mm -hmm. because I'm not hot, which is the other, the like corollary of that. And also you can never be confident that you're hot because everyone will also hate you if you're confident. Yes. So it has flaws. The whole thing feels like a razor ad, really. Yeah. Like the phone or the or the scooter? Well, I was thinking just like an underarm razor with like moisturizing oh, okay. strips. <laughs> Where it's like in the ad is like a woman who's like doing it all. You know what I've been thinking about this week also? Okay. So in Helen Reddy's I Am Woman, there is a lyric that says, if I have to, I can do anything. And I think that we haven't paid enough attention to the fact that she's saying, if I have to. She's not saying that women want to do everything or anything. She's saying that, like, if they have to, they can. But perhaps they don't wish to. Why is this a movie, when I said we were covering it, it was Queers and Perverts? Those pants Lucy Liu is wearing in the helicopter scene. Lucy Liu... As the efficiency expert. Oh, my God. Huge. It feels like somebody watched The Matrix and was like, well, we could do that. <laughs> Lucy Lou as foot dumb. Crispin Glover, hair feet. Crispin Glover, period. Like, what is Crispin Glover doing here, first of yeah. all? A guy that didn't want to do a second Back to the Future movie because he hated the commercialism of it. Crispin Glover, period. Tom Green. Tom Green. The Chad. <laughs> the Chad. Just perv city. Is it the Chad? Again, this movie is just a, is a fertilizer. A fertilizer of pervert cultivation. It's like peak Tom Green when he's like holding the when he's holding the pan of eggs and he's like, it's the Chad. It's the and he falls into the water. It was just like if you didn't know who Tom Green was, you could show them that clip and be like, this is Tom Green's whole thing. Tom Green was the king of MTV. I cannot stress this enough. <laughs> no. Canada's greatest export. And who at this time or because of this was married to Drew Barrymore for a year. A meteoric rise. Exactly. Like a Canada public access TV. 
to married to Drew Barrymore in like three years. Did he get started on public access TV oh, yeah. in Canada? I didn't oh, yeah, know yeah, that. Yeah. I don't I don't know the Tom Green. We need to do more on Tom Green, Alex. <laughs> yeah, the Tom Green show is not on like Oddville, which was another favorite of mine, which was they were like, we have a lot of good luck finding a person with a public access thing and then just branding it MTV and giving them a little money and distribution. So Tom Green is Wayne from Wayne's World. He's like if Wayne starred in Jackass. Jesus Christ. Yes, exactly. And he went from just being some fucking obnoxious guy who even my father sometimes would watch that show and be like, this is pretty funny. <laughs> Tom Green, come on this show if you want. Tom Green, we want you here. This movie is like action figures. It's like, you know, when I was a kid and I would play with action figures, it sort of feels like the scenario I would cook up because the plot is so thin and it kind of doesn't make sense. Like if you really think about it, the plot is like so negligible and just doesn't really matter. It doesn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. And it's so comically over the top. It's like a Power Rangers episode almost to a certain degree. Hmm. And then, yeah, like Crispin Glover is like, you know, he's just like a weird stalking creep. He's never really fully explained. He actually gets explained in Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. They give you his backstory. Is he in it? Oh, yeah. He's back. He, oh, he yeah. comes back. They were like, people said oh, uh, more Crispin Glover and we are delivering. Like, it's one of those things where, again, like, I think like maybe everything that I enjoyed about this movie might have been accidental. But like, I'm glad that even though it's too many villains, I'm glad they gave Crispin Glover this much time on oh, screen. Yeah. Well, Alex, as I said to you, Crispin Glover walked so Cillian Murphy could run. That's so true. Yes. There's an initial part of that. There's one other generation you're missing. Well, who's the third generation? I can't remember. It was uh, Jeremy Irons crawled so Crispin Glover could walk so Cillian Murphy could run. <laughs> He's like a creepy pasta character. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like Mac the Knight from McDonald's, but without the mask. Oh, yeah. Totally. You know that one, Sarah, the hood, the moon face guy? No. When McDonald's started opening late at night, they had a character that was based on Louis Armstrong to a certain degree <laughs> called Mac the Knife. Mac Tonight. Mac Tonight. <laughs> and he had a big moon head and his song he sang, the song was Mac Tonight about McDonald's uh, being open till 10, oh till 10 p.m. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. Yeah. And wait till you see it, Sarah. It's kind of terrifying. It's so good. He's like one of the forgotten McDonald land creatures. No kidding. Yeah, he existed for a few years, but like the people he exposed himself to was <laughs> in your head forever. <laughs> yeah. Also, remember Drew Barrymore's character in Wayne's World 2, where she basically was an Oompa girl? She was like a Swedish receptionist at a record company no, or something. It was like, I wanted to mention this. I find this fascinating. And I think that this is a classic sort of American gendered character and it's also who we really see in playboys of the 60s and 70s on which i am an expert mm. where it's like just the girl who is like she's just painting a fence and her little yeah. tush has fallen out of her overall shorts <laughs> and her boobs are just heaving out of her overall top and she doesn't even know she's just radiating juicy sexuality wherever she goes and then people show up and fuck her and she's like yeah it's yeah. such an interesting archetype to me because it like it implies a lack of sort of gendered violence as the reward for you making it so that there doesn't need to be any right right like the whole reason in real life why one 
doesn't paint fences with their ass hanging out and their their boobs hanging out in a leisurely way and be able to smile is because of the looming threat always of entitled gender violence. Otherwise, we might like doing more around the house things topless. It's hard to say. <laughs> and in Playboy, that's presented never ironically, like in those in those like 60s and 70s illustrations, it's never presented ironically in a way where like it indicates to the man that the reason why this is a fantasy is because of you the reader right like it's like you're the one who would make this scene menacing like it's not her (laughs) it's one of those things and this movie kind of does this a lot like the scene where she licks the steering wheel in the car is like and like to what purpose sorry so much of it is trying to be sexy by someone that has clearly never been turned on a day in their life it's just like so what's sexy i don't know what if we licked a steering wheel of a car yeah, it's like listening to call her daddy it's like i realize we're all talking about sex a lot but has anyone actually had it no okay. i don't know it just it feels so like braggadocious by a bunch of guys that have actually like never had like a, a intimate relationship with a woman ever in their life yeah it's like this was written by victor from wet hot american <laughs> recommending it we're like listen victor wrote a pretty great movie honestly i don't know how he did it (laughs) okay before we get to daddy let's do this one thing that sarah does sometimes i love when you do this sarah so i'm gonna just channel you um which is everyone just speak to one of your unequivocally no caveats needed favorite scenes in the movie like or Mm. thing that happens oh god I kind of like the race car scene because it does not need to be in this movie. It makes no sense. It goes against hype. Um, mm-hmm. Lucy Liu is driving the car, even though we have established that Cameron Diaz is the car driver earlier. Like initially they set her up and then the Cameron, Cameron Diaz takes the car and goes and drives it. But initially it's like, no, Lucy Liu is going to drive. This is perfect because this does not need to be here. And it's almost like we're just going to we're going to have a nice day down on the track. We don't need to be here. It just reminds me of being at racetracks, too. And that's just always a fun environment. So maybe either that scene or the or the, the gutter when they fight in that alley that has all these hallways that lead to a central uh, room for no reason (laughs) (laughs) for the fight scene yeah i love honestly the whole plot uh drew barrymore sleeps with sam rockwell and then he betrays her and he's like i'm the bad guy and he like shoots at her and he actually shoots out the glass behind her and i think that she does this on purpose she like falls backwards out of his chemosphere house and He's also like he's made it personal because she's like, my mom died when I was six and I never met my dad. And he's like, and now you work for a man you've never seen. And he like daddy issues her. And then when he has her tied to the chair later, he's like, again, he's making it personal. And I like that feels to me like a Drew Barrymore influence that it's like, no, you guys, we need there to be some real stakes about a guy being horrible who needs to get blown up. Mm. I do feel like. The whole thing is more satisfying to me because there's just like a little bit of sort of like genuine revenge stuff in there, which I always enjoy in a movie, as we know. Yeah, it's the most that feels like, how do you say revenge, Sarah? Revenge. Revenge. (laughs) It feels the most like that, like that That movie, movie. (laughs) which is that like down to her jumping out of the window backwards. And then, you know, the like hanging piece. She's like hanging there uh, by her garment, which is great. Yeah, I love that. And I liked also that he speaks immediately to daddy issues that she is not immediately seeing. And I was like, um, that character should come on the show as evil Sam Sam Rockwell and review at least one movie with us. <laughs> yes, I would love to know what he sits around watching. I also like how like he's just betrayed Dylan and then he and Kelly Lynch are going to go out for dinner and he's like 
Pancake House or Sizzler? And it's like, bam, <laughs> you're like an interesting villain who wants to go to Sizzler. That's what I love the most is just it's not a single thing. It's just all of Sam Rockwell's like unleashed yeah. Sam Rockwell. Like when we get big Rockwell and I absolutely coincidentally the night before I started watching Confessions of a Dangerous mm. Mind, which is Sam Rockwell at one of his greatest moments with his romantic counterpart in that movie is Drew Barrymore. Oh, my God. Yeah. What? And so that was great and satisfying to watch because Sam Rockwell like is great always. Yeah, I think like I think Sam Rockwell is always like delicious and a delight every time he's doing yeah. something. So he was great and he was especially great being like cocky dance guy. I liked it. I like that a lot. Whenever you taste a dish and you say, say this is delicious. What's in it? Again and again, the answer comes back. <laughs> Sam Rockwell. That's it. It's the only explanation. All right. So I'm, I'm, I never set up this question, but someone listened to new because we had Ruby on and they were, I assume a Ruby fan. And they were like, I don't understand this daddy question. So I'll even set it up for the first time in a long time. Mm -hmm. We used to be a show called why are dads? We talked about dad related issues in movies mm -hmm. and we started asking, we know who the father is, but who is the daddy? And the question is a little ambiguous on purpose mm -hmm. because we want people to answer however they want. And we think it reveals as much about them as it reveals about the person who they're talking about. And sometimes it's a sexy daddy. Sometimes it's a daddy and like the kind of like energy and characteristics they bring. We leave it to people to define the question by way of the answer. So, yeah. Sometimes it's the person you want to drive you home from Disney World as you fall asleep in the backseat. And sometimes it's the person you want to bang. And sometimes it's both. <laughs> I'm going to go first on this. And it checks both boxes that Sarah just said, <laughs> which is Lucy Liu. <laughs> I just think like the confidence her character has throughout this movie, like she's kind of like seems to be the most together, the most steely, obviously, and we see in a, several scenes, the most dominant. I find it an extremely satisfying character on many levels. Really enjoyed Lucy Liu in this movie. I like that her name is Alex. I appreciated that, too. I don't want to say it and sound crazy, but yeah, me too. I like that. Yeah. Miko? <laughs> Ooh, I felt long and hard about this when I was watching last night. I think Drew Barrymore as Dylan. Ooh. Um, mm. She's just got like, she's got a bit of swagger. She's got a bit of confidence. She sort of seems like like the unofficial, like, as a, when, as a group, they need to do their taxes. She's the one that's like, today we do, today <laughs> we do our taxes. Like, we can't, we can't fuck around. We got to get this done. She definitely sort of has both those vibes of like, I am in control. I am driving the car, but also, you know, I'm, I'm sexy and, and all these sort of things. So she sort of has both of those energies to me. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I'm tempted to complete the sentence say, Natalie, I don't actually think she has daddy energy. I think she has like daddy potential, but she's not there yet. Mm. So I'm going to say Kelly Lynch, mm. who's just like a very fun sort of low key femme fatale. And I have I've been on kind of a noir cake lately, and I think femme fatale is such an interesting concept to think about and it's just always nice to see some 90s femme fatale which she always kind of is in things yeah perfect and she's wearing the silk blouse which has how we know she's evil <laughs> perfect i love it well beautiful nico thank you for being willing to do this with us how would people find uh the things that you make out on the world uh you can find me on the internet on twitter and instagram at nico stratus uh, my website nicostratus.com uh, depending on when this comes out, I have an interview with Sharon Van Etten where we talk about the Sandlot that is coming up, oh. which was a pretty fun conversation to have. Beautiful. All right, everybody. 
That is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you to Nico Stratus for appearing in this episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for producing the beats that make our transitions sound so sweet. Thank you, dear listener. Thank you for listening. Thank you for making the show possible. Thank you for telling your friends. Thank you for leaving reviews. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon and Apple Plus subscriptions where you get bonus episodes if that is a thing you're in the position to do, even though we have occasional ads now to help support the overall production. We're still very niche and the majority of our support comes from you. So thank you to everyone who helps make that possible. Multitude supports our show with ad sales. So if you need to talk with us, if you have a cool and good business that isn't doing bad and is actually making some good stuff, get in touch with us and we'll talk about how that could help us support the show. I think that's it for this week's episode. I think that's all you need to know. Next week, we're talking about that thing you do with Shelby Hintzy. We had a wonderful conversation about this most joyful movie. All right, that's it. You, my friend, are good. Thanks for being here.